Hello, listeners everywhere. I'm Helena Cobbin, the president of Just World Educational, a non-profit organization dedicated to expanding the discourse here in the United States and worldwide on vital issues of peace and justice, especially in the long-troubled Middle East. This episode of our podcast is part of a special mini-series we're releasing as part of our Cast Lead Plus 10 project, which will run for 22 days, December 27, 2018, through January 17, 2019, to mark the 10th anniversary of Israel's brutal Operation Cast Lead assault against Gaza, which ran for precisely those same 22 days 10 years ago. If you're on social media, we're using the hashtag hash plus 10 with the 10 in numerals to draw together the numerous activities we'll be running on our Twitter and Facebook accounts throughout this 22-day campaign. Do follow us on both platforms if you're able. On Twitter, we're at JustWorldEd. In the first episode in this mini-series, you can hear the first half of a conversation I had recently about cast lead with the distinguished international jurist Richard Falk. In this episode, we covered the period from when Falk was named the UN Human Rights Council's Special Rapporteur on the situation in the occupied Palestinian territories earlier in 2008 through the main aspects of the 22-day assault, concluding with the ceasefire reached on January 17, 2009. In the two coming episodes, you can hear the second half of my conversation with Richard Falk, in which we discussed the strategic impact and lasting legacy of Operation Cast Lead, and a separate conversation I had with the veteran social justice activist Joe Catron, who recently joined Just World Educational as our Director of Outreach. In it, Joe talks about how cast lead was a big factor galvanizing his interest in the Palestine issue, and also about the time he spent in Gaza from early 2011 through fall 2014, a period which saw two further Israeli assaults on Gaza, assaults that almost certainly would have been prevented if Israel had been held accountable for the crimes it committed in the 2008-2009 assault. Here, then, is the first half of my conversation with Richard Falk. I'm delighted to be joined here by Richard Falk, who's a uh, member of our Board of Directors at Just World Educational and a very distinguished international jurist who, from 2008 through 2014, was the Special Rapporteur for the UN Human Rights Council for the human rights situation in the occupied Palestinian territories. So, um, Richard, your term began just before, a little a few months before Cast Lead happened. Could you tell us how your your appointment was was received by the Israelis and what happened on your first attempt to go and visit Palestine? Uh, yes, of course. Um, uh, let me first say that I'm happy to join you in uh, this conversation. And uh, going back to the appointment was made uh, in June of 
2008, I succeeded John Dugard, who was a South African jurist who had uh, gradually become more uh, critical of Israel's behavior as an occupying power. And this uh, angered Israel so that they lobbied very hard to get someone that they would consider sympathetic with their overall position and were uh, visibly disappointed by uh, my selection because I was perceived as more critical than John Dugard, who uh, had been the target of their uh, anger to begin with. Uh, the UN uh, ambassador from the United States at that time was John Bolton, the present National Security Advisor to Trump, who greeted my uh, appointment by saying, not only was I a fruitcake in his eyes, but also my, uh, selecting me showed uh, how uh, terrible the UN was as an organization, and it didn't really deserve uh, serious support. So when I came, my first uh, so-called mission was to meet with Palestinian Authority leaders, including... Uh, Mahmoud Abbas in Ramallah, and I had an approved itinerary that we had shown to the Israeli embassy in Geneva, and the visas had been granted to my uh, to assistance. So uh, I assumed, and the people in Geneva with experience were convinced that I'd have no difficulty entering to carry out the mission. But as it turned out, I was detained at the airport and expelled under the pretext that I had been warned not to come, which was a kind of lie that was told to the media at the time. And I spent uh, some hours in a prison cell not far from the airport and uh, came back to the U.S. and tried to explain what had happened uh, to the media. And I think it was partly uh, a consequence of this not wanting me to be there just prior to plans to launch CastLab. And uh, there, there is a kind of indication that they were nervous about having... Uh, a, a UN uh, official uh, authenticate uh, the breaking of the truce and the launching of this massive attack on Gaza in the days uh, just following uh, the Christmas holiday. So um, you were not in Palestine or in Israel during Castled, but presumably watching it from afar. So um, the operation started on December 27th and um, was a very brutal um, assault from land, sea, and air. Well, starting off with air and sea attack against Gaza and then um, the Israeli military about two, two weeks in or ten days in sent in land forces as well to try to root out 
the Hamas central leadership. They failed to do that, but they inflicted, obviously, very, very serious casualties on the whole population of of Gaza, which was then about 1.8 or 1.9 million people, and um, devastated a lot of the physical infrastructure and the housing stock in in Gaza. Um, And we will be providing on the website a lot of information about the, the losses and about what happened day by day. So from where you were looking at the reports and getting the reports from the UN people who were in Gaza with UNWA and UNICEF and other UN bodies, what was your feeling about the kinds of about the behavior of the Israeli military and then also of the Palestinian fighters during Khartoum? Well, of course, it, it was uh, hard to get a very clear picture of what was happening, except the uh, the basic reality that uh, Israel was using uh, highly sophisticated modern technology of war against a completely vulnerable society that had comparatively primitive weaponry. And I think the comparison of the casualties is revealing in that respect because while uh, an estimated uh, 1,400 Palestinians were killed, only 13 Israelis died, and of those, at least four were a result of friendly fire. And this, these kind of casualty uh, imbalances does remind one of colonial wars or the wars between the uh, early American settlers and the American Native Americans, and suggests the the kind of um, unacceptable reliance on excessive force that has been a characteristic of the Israeli uh, occupation and indeed suppression of the Palestinian people as a whole ever since uh, 19, the 1948 war. And so in that sense, this was a, the whole uh, uh, approach in, um, to Gaza in caste-led, which was also tied to an upcoming election in Israel where the leadership as has been its practice on other occasions, tries to demonstrate both that Israel is subject to security threats and that those threats will be met by overwhelming force. Uh, that uh, Kasled is a kind of uh, example of that uh, characteristic Israeli policy and it was also a way at the time of signaling to Iran and other adversaries in the region uh, that Israel will not hesitate to use overwhelming force if its security interests are in any way challenged. And so this was a very important uh, set of events beyond the cruelty and uh, excessive violence 
that was used to really terrorize uh, the Palestinian population in Gaza as a whole and probably to try to uh, convince Palestinians that unless they got rid of Hamas as their uh, leaders uh, or as their uh, as the governing force in Gaza, they would continue to be um, victimized in this way. And so not only was it excessive force, but it was a c- collective punishment, which is uh, explicitly prohibited by Article 33 of the Fourth Geneva Convention and is widely considered to be a crime against humanity on its own. So there was very serious uh, uh, encroachment on uh, what a what a political uh, conflict should involve, and that. Uh, condition was aggravated by the fact that Israel, as the occupying power, had particular responsibility to minimize any uh, suffering of the civilian population. That was the whole point of the Geneva Conventions, is to create a framework where when occupation occurs, it should be carried out in a manner that is as protective of the civilian population as it's possible to be. So that contrasts with the Israeli uh, approach, which is to uh, terrorize the civilian population with excessive force that is administered punitively. So I think it it, uh, does act to remind us of what in concrete terms, this occupation uh, involves for the Palestinian people and the responsibility that should be engaged with respect to Israel and its leadership. So um, the Israelis, well, many Israelis and their um, supporters in this country claim that um, by withdrawing the soldiers and settlers from the heart of Gaza um, in 2005, the Israeli government therefore is no longer the occupying power in the same way, or in any way, they claim, that it's not the occupying power. What, what do you think about that? Well, I think that it's, it's an extremely uh, misleading uh construction of the reality and has been uh, consistently rejected uh, by the United Nations and uh, almost all objective observers because the disengagement uh, that occurred in 2005 uh, involved withdrawing to the borders but controlling entry and exit and has been compared to a prison in which Uh, the guards uh, maintain control over uh, the uh, borders of the prison but don't enter into the grounds themselves except when there's uh, trouble or some kind of uh, operation of the sort that Castled represented in uh, in 2008. 
even someone as conservative as uh, David Cameron when he was prime minister called uh, the administration of Gaza the largest open-air prison in the world. And numerous people have made uh, numerous uh, conservative uh, leaders and others have made uh, similar comments so that uh, the notion that disengagement involved an end to the occupation uh, was a really cruel uh, joke in a way because it was never harsher for uh, the people of Gaza. The occupation was probably a more tolerable condition of occupation or, or more tolerable form of occupation because after 2005 and after the uh, Hamas won the elections in 2006 and took over from Fatah, uh, the governing of um, Gaza in 2007, uh, a blockade was imposed and the uh, people there were unable to import lots of things they needed for health and for the reconstruction of the homes that had been destroyed during uh, caste led. So uh, in every uh, genuine way, uh, Gaza remains occupied, Israel remains responsible and under international law, and uh, the UN uh, is uh, completely uh, in accord with that line of interpretation. And, and actually, if Israel wasn't the occupying power in a, in a legal sense, then the attacks that it launched in 2008 and then again in 2012 and 2014 would have been wars of aggression, surely. Yes. They, they, and, and that is a question that should have been investigated uh, you know, if you accept the, as you say, the Israeli line of defense, they're guilty of the worst crime under international criminal law. That uh, when the Nuremberg trials were held after World War II, the judgment said the crime against peace, which is what we uh, are referring to when we talk about aggression is a crime that embraces all the other crimes and is the supreme crime against uh, international uh, peaceful uh, relations. So uh, it is true that uh, uh, that Israeli construction of the reality uh, is uh, subject to this kind of criticism. Of course, the Israelis say that they were uh, engaged in a reasonable security undertaking that involved um, responses to rocket fire from Gaza and were um, generated by the realization that uh, Hamas was building tunnels that could have imperiled uh, Israeli security.
And interestingly, right now we hear the same allegations from Israel against Lebanon, but <laughs> I guess... Yeah, uh, and, and of course, uh, as some have pointed out, if that was the real uh, rationale for the uh, attack, it could have been handled completely differently because since they knew the uh, location of the tunnels, they could easily have uh, blocked them uh, from uh, the other end and there was no need to uh, launch this extremely uh, devastating and provocative uh, uh, operation. Hamas has been accused of deliberately targeting civilians. What's your view of that? Well, I think they've uh, uh, responded with the weaponry they've possessed, which is, as I said earlier, rather primitive and isn't capable of being guided to uh, precise targets. So it's more that they have indiscriminate weaponry rather than they target civilians. Uh, and uh, that is a violation of international uh, customary law and uh, is something that uh, should be prohibited. At the same time, if you compare it to what uh, Gaza has been subjected to, it is very trivial uh, by comparison to the uh, firepower and destructiveness of what Israel has been doing. So it, re it re relates indirectly to how one conceives of the right of resistance in circumstances of this sort where a population, including its uh, civilian uh, elements, is subjected to persistent, overwhelming violence. Is there nothing that can be done to protect that uh, society by way of resistance, particularly in the absence of the international community taking some responsibility uh, for uh, engaging in some sort of protective peacekeeping. The UN was very proud of the norm responsibility to protect, which was invoked in 2011 uh, to justify the intervention in Libya. Uh, and was misused there, but nevertheless, it would be quite appropriate to uh, protect the people of Gaza by uh, engaging in that kind of undertaking uh, that could be uh, validated by responsibility to protect uh, rationale. But of course, in the Security Council, which would have to uh, decide to do that, uh, the UN, the US would certainly uh, veto any such initiative unless Israel uh, unexpectedly were to give their agreement to that. Um, so, so later, this question of whether Hamas deliberately targeted civilians, I think it came up with the Goldstone report, which we'll get to in a moment. But 
I've been looking at the the casualty figures. Um, so, on the during the 22 days of cast lead in Israel, there were 10 soldiers killed, of whom, as you mentioned, four were killed by in friendly fire incidents. So, six of them were presumably killed by by Hamas, and three civilians were killed in Israel, which makes me question whether Hamas was targeting civilians because, you know, there are a lot more civilians in the south of Israel than there are members of the military. And actually what it looks like just from those figures is that they were targeting the military as much as they were capable of targeting anybody. And I think most of those military losses happened during the the land phase of the war when Yes. No, that, that's quite correct. And and if you think about the uh, proportion of civilian to uh, combatant deaths, uh, on the Israeli side, three times more uh, combatants were killed than civilians, 10 to 3, whereas on the uh, Palestinian side, at least... Um, uh, 926 uh, civilians were killed uh, and only uh, 200 and some uh, combatants, uh, which uh, among the verified uh, casualties. And that would suggest that four times as many civilians uh, were killed by Israel than uh, combatants which is just the reverse of what the Palestinians did. So it raises the question, who were the terrorists in this engagement? And if, if the essence of terrorism is use, the use of uh, violence against civilians, certainly the casualty to, uh, re- totals uh, raise suspicions about Israel's identity. Well, I think that's a very good point. I mean, I think definition of terrorism is use of or threat of use of violence against civilians for political purposes. And clearly, the Israelis had a political purpose, which was to remove or unseat or dismantle the Hamas governing authority. Um, But at the end of the day, if we race forward to January the 17th um, after some frenzied international diplomacy from which, of course, Washington was kind of absent because it was the lame duck days of uh, the George W. Bush presidency and um, everybody was eagerly awaiting the fresh presidency of, of Barack Obama. So the international aspects of the diplomacy were handled much more, as I recall, by France. And so France and Egypt um, sort of brokered another ceasefire um, on January 17th, which was not, you know, wholly successful, but Hamas remained in power, and then I think the Israelis went fairly speedily to that election that you, you talked about, and Ehud Olmert had already been, um, I think, displaced from 
being at the head of his party's list. So then we went into 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 Netanyahu, I think. Yes. Hey there. Just to remind you, on December 30th, we'll be releasing the second half of this conversation with Richard Falk. This mini-series on Just World Podcast is part of our broader Cast-Led Plus 10 campaign. You can find more information about the campaign on our website at www.justworldeducational.org. If you click on the Donate tab on the website, you can learn about how you can help support our Cast-Led Plus 10 campaign and the rest of our community education programs. We really appreciate any financial or volunteering help you can give us. Thanks, and stay well.